We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Hello and welcome to another special about the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation having a big impact on our little Tassie community from a small organisation. Each week we love to bring you big ideas from Tasmania, focusing on science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. And we're sticking on the medicine topic as part of our mini-series. My name's Dr Neve Chapman. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Ellie Clapham. And I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana people as we record on Lutrawita. I also acknowledge the traditional owners where you're listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So Ellie, we've been having a great time talking to amazing men and women in STEM uh, who are doing great things for the health of all Tasmanians as part of the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation mini-series. Can you tell us a little about who we're interviewing today? Absolutely, Neve. So today we are chatting with Associate Professor Jane Olte, whose study on the screening for risk of Alzheimer's disease received the major project grant for 2022 from the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation. Not only is Jane a medical researcher, but she is also a senior lecturer in neurology at the Wicking Dementia Centre, works as a neurology consultant at the Royal Hobart Hospital and is a mum. <laughs> Congratulations, Jane. Super Thank stoked you. for you. So Jane has provided major contributions to the neurology space in Tasmania and Jane, I'm so excited to learn about your work in this episode, I'm sure everyone else is as well. Thank you for that lovely introduction. (laughs) Pleasure. (laughs) So let's start with the basics. Can you please explain what neurology is and where your interests specifically lie within this topic? Yeah, sure. Um, So neurology is really the study of the brain um, and the medical... um, treatment I suppose or management of disorders of the brain Um, I probably should correct that and say it's the brain the spinal cord the nerves and the muscles Um, so common neurological disorders would be things like uh, stroke Parkinson's multiple sclerosis migraine Um, these are things that we would commonly see in the clinic Um, and within that um, I trained in all of those as I was going through my um, specialist training Um, and then when I became a consultant I subspecialized in what we call movement disorders Um, so the common movement disorders would be Parkinson's disease um, essential tremor something called dystonia and anything that really makes you um, move involuntarily or in an abnormal way Um, and then since moving to Tasmania I've also um, branched out from Parkinson's across to Alzheimer's disease and actually there's quite a lot of similarities between Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in that they're both degenerative brain disorders. What drew you to movement specifically Jane because I just love when people talk about how they got sucked into one specific area? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think I'm quite a visual learner and probably quite visually perceptive. Um, you know, I sort of notice things around me generally. And so I think movement disorders really suited me that so much of it is watching people um, and pattern recognition. So looking for um, sort of characteristic signs and piecing them together. And I've always enjoyed just 
people watching, you know, sitting in a cafe and watching people walk by. And I guess really now I'm paid to do that. Uh, but I've also got the training um, to recognise what are the subtle early signs of Parkinson's or tremor. Um, and when I was in the UK, I was given an opportunity to come over to Australia and work at Monash Medical Centre um, doing a movement disorders fellowship for six months. And I think it was really that that was the turning point that I just really loved the research and the clinical side. Um, and then went back to the UK thinking, yeah, that's what I want to subspecialise in. So talking of all of your um, pathways through your journey, um, your resume is very impressive to say the least. And you are so involved with many different areas of the neurology space. So why is it so important to you to be involved in teaching as well as consulting and uh, medical research as well? Um, I just think they're all really entwined, to be honest. Um, as a medical doctor, we always have more junior doctors with us. Uh, we have nurses, allied health and medical students. So it's just an intrinsic part of being a doctor that you are naturally uh, teaching others. And also, that's how we learnt. You know, we obviously have lectures and theoretical knowledge, but it's very much an apprenticeship where we're sitting with people, we're observing, and we're learning how, how do we want to be a doctor and all those sort of um, subtle, the, the craft of medicine that you can't really learn from a textbook. Um, so I just really enjoy uh, mentoring and teaching um, people around me. And I think that's how we you know, generate the next uh, generation of doctors and researchers. Um, and then, you know, tying that in with research, I think without research, we're not going to discover new things. We're not going to push the, the boundaries of medicine and discover new treatments and so on. So I just think the research, the teaching, the, the medicine, they just all very integrated. How did you, Jane, in your training, navigate finding your specialty or finding your calling? Because for me, particularly with neurology or degenerative degenerative disorders um I just think it must be such a harrowing calling but also like so much to uncover from that research perspective so it probably really marries your interests quite well yeah I think um so in the UK where I did my specialist neurology training we spend five years uh doing cl uh, training up in clinical neurology across all these different specialities so we get a good exposure across a broad range of conditions and I think I would have been happy doing other specialities really but I think there was something about um, probably the people the patients that came to see me particularly with Parkinson's where it is a degenerative disorder so people do um, the disease is gradually progressing in the background but equally we have some great treatments now and it's really satisfying to see people gain their quality of life again when they start medication um, and I believe you can deliver a diagnosis well um, so that somebody is, you know, they're obviously not happy to receive that diagnosis. They don't want to have Parkinson's, for example. But if you say to that person, look, I'm going to walk this path with you. We're going to be seeing a lot of each other over the coming years. It becomes more like a sort of GP relationship where you really get to know that person, not just their disorder. You often get to know their family and where they went on holiday and what their interests are. So, and that's really important because you can then tailor the management of their condition around their lifestyle and what they need. You know, and somebody who's 40 with Parkinson's working full time will have different needs to someone who's 80. Um, and it's just really recognising each individual will require that sort of personalised treatment. 
Um, so to go back to your point about it being harrowing, I think um, I think there are parts that can be um, very sad. Um, and there is a palliative phase to degenerative disorders that's important to recognise towards the end of life. Um, but equally, I think there can be many really positive moments and it's really, really satisfying to to start somebody on a new treatment and they come in and they're almost like a new person the next time. So, you know, I, I wouldn't want any sort of budding neurologists out there to be thinking, oh, it's all doom and gloom. It's really not. Yeah, that's fabulous. I, yeah, but I do think you have to be comfortable also with recognising there's a limit to what we can do with medicine. Um, and and part of our role is um, is not just giving medications, it's also being there for that person and um, talking through the, their experiences, really. But I, I honestly see that as a privilege. Yeah, I think that's so fantastic the way you described walking the path with someone and choosing an individual approach to their care and management that has to adapt based on how their life changes as well across the, the condition. Fantastic. And stick with us while we talk more to Associate Professor Jane Alty and her work that's being supported by the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are talking with Associate Professor Jane Alty. My name is Ellie Clapham and I'm joined by Neve Chapman. So as, as we have touched on, your research is in the field of neurology and focuses specifically on neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's disease. One of your studies is on the development of a non-invasive screening test to detect risk of Alzheimer's disease pathology and that's the study that's funded by the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation. So I'm interested to know, what are the current usual practices for Alzheimer's disease detection and diagnosis, and how is this test going to improve on these current standards? Um, so currently, um, a typical clinical scenario would be somebody would go to their GP and say, you know, I've got some memory problems, or maybe it would be their loved one that would bring them to the GP. Uh, they would then be referred on usually to some form of memory clinic that might be a geriatric clinic, neurology clinic. Here we have what we call the Island Memory Clinic, or Me Island Clinic run at the University of Tasmania. Um, and then people will come along and ha basically have a series of face-to-face -face tests. So some of that is taking the history of the symptoms, doing some pen and paper memory um, questions with them, um, some of that's examining them physically to see if there's any particular signs. And then in many clinics, it would then involve somebody being referred separately onto a different clinic to have what we call neuropsychology assessments, which are very in-depth tests um, assessing memory and language and uh, different functions of the brain. And then a separate appointment for perhaps an MRI brain scan, looking at the structure of the brain, and some blood tests. So as you can see, there's probably a series of tests that take days or weeks that are expensive and they're time consuming. And then at the end of all of that, somebody will uh, receive a diagnosis. We've tried to improve on that here at the university where we have a one-stop clinic. Um, so we try and bring all those assessments together over one, one or two days. So you can improve that clinical flow but as you can hear, it's still quite intense for that person to go through. Um, 
And it, it is a lot, quite a long-winded process, really, compared to the diagnosis of some other disorders where you might be able to do a particular blood test or a particular ECG, for example, and you can say what the diagnosis is. So it's it's quite complex and and costly and costly. That's right. Um, so really, with the uh, the work that's being funded through the Royal Hobart Research Foundation, we're looking to see can we detect. Um, people at risk of developing uh, dementia, specifically Alzheimer's, that accounts for 70% of all dementias, can we actually detect them at a much earlier stage and potentially much quicker? Um, So to be clear, this wouldn't replace a diagnosis, but it would help us um, stratify who is looking high risk, who is looking lower risk. And those that are looking higher risk push them through that process a bit sooner or look at instigating some risk modification uh, because it's important to point out that 40% of dementias are attributable to modifiable risk factors. So if we could identify people much earlier, potentially we can even slow down or prevent them progressing on to dementia. So Jane, what kind of risk factors do you talk about there that contribute to someone's risk of developing dementia? Um, So there are 12 modifiable risk factors and these were recently published by the Lancet Commission. That's available to anyone, so you can just put it into Google, Lancet Commission, Dementia Prevention. Um, And many of them are actually vascular risk factors, so they're things like stopping smoking, managing blood pressure, taking up more physical activity. Um, And then there are some non-vascular risk factors, so that's things like having more social interactions uh, that's quite cognitively stimulating, um, ideally living away from areas of high pollution. Um, But I think it's just important to say that many people think, oh, dementia is something that's inevitable with ageing that we may all get. And actually, there's really encouraging evidence now that we can all modify our risk factors, particularly from middle age onwards. Uh, but it's never too late mm-hmm. to, to modify these risk factors. Yeah, fantastic. And upon a diagnosis, what does that journey look like? I mean, I don't understand much about the treatment process. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so when we diagnose somebody with dementia, ideally we like to do that face-to-face and that's the way uh, we manage it in our cognitive clinic. And We will sit with that person and we normally ask them to bring a support person along as well that tends to be their spouse or other family member or close friend. Um, and we will often ask them, what, what, why do you think you came to the clinic? What are you worried about? And often that's a good way um, to bring the the subject of dementia to the forefront because often people that's exactly what they're worried about um, and we inform people in plain language terms you know you do what you don't have dementia and it would appear to be an Alzheimer's type or a vascular type there's different types of dementia and then depending really on what that um, dementia subtype is uh, there are certain tablets you can take Um, that don't uh, stop the progression of dementia, but they can reduce some of the symptoms associated with it. Um, But it really depends a little bit on the subtype. Uh, So medications, and then there are more um, the support services that go with that. So it might be applicable to apply someone, say, to a social worker or to look at more support at home, or it's very individualised, really. Um, I'm interested to know, so you're obviously intimately aware of the um, the medicine side of neurology and then the um, research. Do you feel like they're aligned with each other? Is research catching up with practice or vice versa? 
I think so. I mean, I think there's always a lag um, where researchers are discovering new things and there's a lag before that becomes routine clinical practice. Um, but I think clinicians are well placed to do research because, you, you know, you're right at the forefront and you're meeting people who are telling you this is what's important to me or this is what I'm concerned about. So I think the clinical side can really direct your research. And equally, as a researcher, you, you have a good feel for what's around the corner that potentially might become clinical practice. In reading about another of your projects, which is um, called the TAS test, I really like the phrase um, where it was described as a new online tool that aims to discriminate between healthy ageing um, and early dementia. Can you talk on this concept of healthy ageing versus uh, early dementia? Sure. Um, so going back to the most common cause of dementia, which is Alzheimer's disease, um, accounting for 70% of all dementias, um, many people don't realise that by the time they're diagnosed with dementia, the pathology, the abnormal proteins and the brain cell loss has been silently progressing in the brain for about 10 to 15 years. Um, so by the time we're diagnosing someone, the pathology is quite advanced. And that 10 to 15 year uh, window where we know there's some abnormalities in the brain, but they're not manifesting yet as a, as a clinical um, memory problem gives us a real window of opportunity this is what we call the pre-clinical phase of dementia because if we can detect people in that pre-clinical phase those risk factors we just talked about if we can modify those risk factors at that very early stage importantly before people have developed memory problems we have a real opportunity there to change the trajectory of dementia and I consider it a little bit similar to what was done decades ago with cancer, where we look for the pre-cancerous stage in order to instigate some kind of intervention to stop it progressing onto full-blown cancer. And I think it's been recognised for a long time that dementia research is probably decades behind where cancer research has been. But I think we're catching up now and we're recognising if we can detect that preclinical phase, we can do something that's probably going to have a greater effect. Um, so talking about TAS test, um, TAS test uses a completely different way to detect that preclinical phase. And there's good evidence that people's hand movements change in that preclinical phase. And some of us see that. We notice that some older people really struggle to handle money or do the buttons upon the shirt. And that's often been put down to just normal ageing. And it could be, of course. But it's now becoming apparent that the rhythm of movements becomes abnormal in the preclinical phase. And probably not abnormal where you or I could see it, but abnormal where a computer can detect it. So TAS test, in summary, records hand movements, really simple hand movements like tapping on a keyboard or tapping alternate keys on a keyboard or opening and closing the hand in front of the laptop camera. And then it uses computer algorithms to measure those movements in a really precise way. Sounds like there's a wealth of research happening there, Jane, and a lot to keep on top on, and that Tazzy's very lucky to have a clinician researcher like yourself informing local research. Stay with us in just a moment. We'll be talking about the future implications of Associate Professor Jane Alty's work in neurology research. <music> 
You're listening to That's What I Call Science. I am Ellie Clapham and I'm joined by Neve Chapman and we are talking about neurology, dementia and Alzheimer's disease research with Associate Professor Jane Olte. So I'm interested to know from your perspective, what is actually a healthy brain and how can you achieve this? We've talked a little bit about risk factors, but what does a healthy brain actually look or feel like? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, I mean, I you know, there's different ways of answering that really. In terms of structure, um, one would expect a healthy brain to be a large brain. We know that from about the age of 50-ish, 60, that we all gradually lose some brain cells. That's part of normal ageing. But a healthy brain would be losing less brain cells um, than one that's less healthy. Um, and that that's the overall structure you know what does it look like um, when we do a brain scan Um, but then of course there's function Um, so how well are we thinking and remembering and our vocabulary and our visual spatial orientation and largely those two go together so if we tend to have a larger brain people tend to have higher function in those abilities. But what's really interesting is there's this concept of cognitive reserve, um, and this ties in with what we were talking about before with modifiable risk factors. So if you are somebody that has had a lot of education in your life and you've had a cognitively stimulating uh, job, be that paid employment or looking after children, which is very busy cognitively stimulating job but something that's really kept your mind active and you do say some hobbies as you get older and you continue to learn you continue to fire those brain cells um, this can build up a buffer so that as we naturally age and we lose brain cells the function of the brain can stay very healthy so cognitive reserve is something that we all build up throughout life some people build up more than others But it's a really fascinating concept because in the um, cognitive clinic that I work in, we will sometimes see somebody's brain scan and it looks a lot smaller. It's, um, you know, they've lost a lot of brain cells. And yet when we test that person, they actually do extremely well on the tests. And that's related really to the fact they've built up cognitive reserve throughout their life. So it's given them this buffer to withstand some, some changes. So is that similar to, I remember one time I heard a fascinating a tidbit that taxi drivers in the UK, in London specifically, have some of the most complex cognitive maps in their brain because of how complex the streets of London are, which is fascinating because that's, you know, not to oversimplify things, but that's typically taxi drivers would be a lower socioeconomic or from a poorer background. So I think that goes to show that that complexity that you keep your brain active really counts for a lot. So do you think there's a time point in life let's say retirement or another time where it's really important for individuals to be a little bit proactive but also for us to target support packages for people yeah I think I mean people so generally um, we're being told that middle age onwards is the key time to start thinking about um, key you know building further cognitive reserve um, and modifying those risk factors Um, anecdotally working in the clinic I do feel um, that retirement is often a risky time uh, where people have often had a certain structure and routine and responsibility at work they've retired and sometimes haven't replaced that with something that's equally cognitive stimulating 
and I, this is anecdotal, but I do see quite a few people that come to me a year after retirement say, oh, I just can't remember things and I can't speak as well as I used to. Some of those people actually respond really well when we say, well, actually, why don't you go and join the University of Third Age? Or why don't you go to night school and learn a language? Don't stop learning. Um, but sometimes that's also just unmasked the early stages of dementia, um, where there is just this sort of little bit of a drop down in mm. function abilities. And to ask a potentially sensitive question, what do you consider middle age now? Oh, gosh. It's um, always a bit older than me. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever my age is, plus five years. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely, I'm definitely middle-aged now. I, I think probably, what should we say, late 40s, yeah. early 50s. I think it's it has nudged up a bit, hasn't it, really? Because yeah, I kind of wonder, you know, it was the early 90s when for cardiovascular disease, which people used to just think you'd get, you just yep. drop dead one day from a heart attack or a stroke, whereas now we have many tools to identify people that are at risk. And that only came out in the early 90s and we're still kind of struggling to get that into practice. But we know that if you start early from around age 45, you can do something about it, be more active, yep. manage your blood pressure well. So it's the same kind of message really here. It's so similar. Yeah. yeah. When you hit 45, clock's ticking, yep. be proactive. <laughs> it's the individual message. I also just wonder in our final couple of minutes... How do you see this working from like a health system sustainability perspective? Like, is there going to be a package that's, you know, you're middle-aged and we assess what's your risk of some of these chronic diseases? Do we have the TAS test as part of a package where we're really trying to regularly monitor who's at risk for what? Because something like dementia is hugely burdensome for an individual, their family, but also the system. Do you see that kind of, is that the ultimate goal for something like what you're developing? I, I guess it is. Yes, I think we've got to be um, we've got to be optimistic about dementia. And I feel that for a long time, people have been very pessimistic about it and think that there's nothing that can be done. And it's something that some of us will get as we get older. And I think we do need to be far more proactive. And there are now um, there are now emerging blood tests that are still very much a research tool, not yet in clinical practice. But these blood tests may give us a good indicator of whether we're high or low risk for developing dementia, say, in 10 years' time. The problem with the blood tests is they're rather expensive and it's likely that many people will struggle to access them, particularly living in rural or remote communities. So I think something like TAS test, if that proves to be um, accurate and um, acceptable may sit in between so it may be that somebody can do a computer test we send them the login to the home they do the computer test and it gives us a risk stratification to say look you're looking up you're looking higher risk we'll put you forward for that expensive blood test whereas if it's looking low risk I think we can hold off and we'll just screen you again in a year's time so similar to other screening programs that we have say for bowel cancer or breast cancer I could see something really similar for dementia. And I think this is the only way, to be honest, that we try and detect it 10 years before we're actually seeing it currently. Fantastic. And I think that optimistic note is a perfect place to end our show. Thanks so much for making the time to talk to us, Jane. It's been an absolute you. pleasure. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. If you've enjoyed the show, please check out our Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation mini-series that has amazing stories from local researchers. And you can find some fun facts on our social media channels. Until next time, my name's Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, the amazing Ellie Clapham. Thanks and goodbye. This programme was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au.
You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.